The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello, and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast, where today we radiate communion with Whitley Strieber, who is an author of many, many books, including the book Communion, which was also made into the film Communion. Whitley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You are an author of horror, sci-fi, fantasy type of books. You've got a lot of books out there. How many have you written? I don't know. Over 40, I fear. Oh, wow. That's quite a few. Yeah. Did you start out in horror writing and science fiction? Yeah, I was writing literary novels and not getting any interest from publishers. And I hit upon the idea of writing a book called The Wolfen, which was about a highly intelligent species of wolf who lived among us and we were its prey. And they were very skillful and careful to only cull the weak and the unwanted from the herd of the human herd, Mm -hmm. just like real wolves do in the wild. And our world was their wild. And it was immediately picked up by a publisher, and it was a big hit. That's exciting. But you're probably best known for communion. Yes. True story. Um, Amazingly enough, yes. It's exactly what it is. When did that happen to you? The biggest event happened in December of 1985. Mm -hmm. And I basically woke up in a room full of appeared to be gigantic insects and had a probably fairly brief, maybe 10 or 15 minutes at most, experience there in that room and then was returned to my bed in my little cabin in upstate New York in a state of shock. And oh my gosh. For anybody who doesn't know this story, we're not talking about like large wood roaches or anything like that. We're talking about mantid beings. like light- well, They weren't that large. There were two forms. Mm-hmm. One form were about four and a half to five feet tall at most. And they had great big black eyes and very thin arms and sort of claw-like hands. And they moved rather gracefully, you know, like almost the dance-like movement of a praying mantis. If you see a praying mantis moving, it moves very, and then suddenly moves when it's capturing something. And then there were these others that were short and squat and moved very quickly. And I never got a really good look at them, but they seemed to have kind of mashed faces and these complicated dark blue uniforms with lots of straps on them and things and pockets. And that's what I saw. And I was not aware of anything like aliens 
at the time. I mean, I had as much exposure to science fiction as anyone, but I'd written a few horror novels, never a science fiction book at the time. And I had read science fiction, certainly when I was a boy. And I had been interested in UFOs and flying saucers when I was young in the 50s because they were quite a topic in the news. But at that point in my life, none of that was of much interest to me. I was writing a book about the Soviet Union at the time, actually. And suddenly here this was in the middle of my life, and I did not know what to make of it at all. Had you had any sightings before that experience? Something odd had happened the October before that at the cabin, but we didn't relate it to UFOs at all. We had some guests at the cabin. We lived in, this about 90 miles north of New York City in a little town. Not rather isolated, but it wasn't like out in the middle of nowhere. And we were all awakened in the night by a loud bang and a very bright light shone down over the cabin, so bright that the guests thought it was daylight and they thought they'd overslept. And I thought the house had caught fire. And my little boy was downstairs sleeping. There were two bedrooms downstairs and one up. My wife and I were in the bedroom upstairs and the little boy and our little boy and the guests were in the two bedrooms downstairs. He began screaming because the bang was so loud. And I jumped out of bed because I thought the house was on fire and I needed to get everybody out. But then the light disappeared and I went downstairs immediately to comfort my son who was still crying. And the lady, Annie Gottlieb, was standing in the doorway of the guest bedroom. And as I rushed past her, I said, it's okay, Annie, nothing's wrong. And I went into my son's room and comforted him, then went back up to bed. And my wife was half asleep and she said, is anything wrong? And I said, no, it's all right. We went on to go back to sleep. It was a very strange incident, but we didn't think about it any further. In other words, we didn't talk about it the next day. Jacques Sandalescu and Annie's friend was with her, and he thought they'd overslept because the light was so bright. It was not like lightning. It was a really bright light. It completely turned the whole area into day, bright, like a very bright, sunny noon, and then it was gone in an instant. That was the first thing that happened, but we didn't relate it to anything relating to aliens or UFOs or anything like that, because that simply wasn't something we were thinking about. And nothing happened between then and the second incident. I became very apprehensive. I bought an alarm system at, at Radio Shack and put it into the house. I installed it myself, and I was bought a shotgun and a pistol and made my wife very nervous because she didn't understand what I was doing marching around the house with a shotgun. And, you know, I didn't either. Frankly, I didn't know why I was so scared. And she said, you know, Whitley, she called the sheriff at one point to find out what the crime rate was. And he said, Mrs. Treber, we don't have a crime rate. That's why there's only two people in the sheriff's department. <laughs> uh, so she said, you, you live in Greenwich Village, which has a very high crime rate, and you sleep peacefully there. Now here we are out in a place that hasn't had a significant crime of any kind in years, let alone a violent crime, and you're terrified. I don't get it. Maybe we should sell the house and move back. We'd only had the house for about a year, but I compulsively wanted to go back and back, and I couldn't stay away. Oh my gosh. This is something that I've heard from other abduction stories about the bright light outside, like a Cleveland, yeah. right, that often accompanies these things. Well, if you see a bright light like that that doesn't make sense, you can expect to have a disappointing experience very soon. That's all I can say. A disappointing experience. Well, disappointing in the sense that it rattled you badly. It just completely upended me. I didn't understand what the October experience 
have done because I had didn't relate my inexplicable fears to what had happened. And I was perplexed, but no more. And I really didn't understand why I was so nervous, but I was very nervous. That was quite true and clear to me. But then the experience that happened in December was much more vivid. And at first, I didn't remember it at all. I just thought there was an owl had come into the house. Oh. And of course, no owl could have come into the house, as my wife very gently pointed out to me the next morning when I was explaining how this owl must have come in. And she said, well, Whitley, no owl could get in here because there was a wood stove burning, but there was no hearth, no chimney to come down. All the windows were shut. So that wasn't possible. And I remember in the evening, as the evening fell on the first night after it happened, I felt very, very disturbed. And I knew something had happened to me, but I didn't know what it was. And over the next few weeks, I, I became very, very cross. And I had a very, really difficult time. And I went to the doctor because I had a considerable amount of rectal pain and pain in the side of my head where I remembered them putting in a needle. And he did tell me that I had a rectal injury. And that was extremely disturbing because then I thought, I've been the victim of a crime. Because by that time, I was a, quite a famous writer. And I had just published a fairly controversial book about limited nuclear war called War Day that I hadn't thought of as being particularly political, but it turned out to be right in the middle of a political firestorm about whether or not we should harden our industrial infrastructure against limited nuclear war. This is the height of the Cold War, the Reagan administration. And I um, I didn't know what else to think. That, of course, I'd been attacked and perhaps given some sort of hallucinogenic drug that would explain these bizarre memories I was having. And so I tried to engage the New York State Criminal Investigation Division, and they sent a man out, but there was nothing for him to go on. I mean, the doctor report was perfectly clear. I had been injured. But there was no reason to believe the injury was anything except perhaps an accident or even something self-induced. There was no clear indication, as there might have been with a woman, that it was a rape. It was just a tear, a rectal tear. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any description of anybody that made sense. I mean, I had these crazy images of these bizarre-looking creatures. But, you know, no detective, New York State criminal detective, is going to be able to have any luck with descriptions like that. Let's put it that way. And so I hit on the idea of trying to find out if there was something behind these images in my mind, if I could recognize someone. And I did remember that there had been a man there called, well, I'm not going to say his name, because he was a Central Intelligence Agency employee whom I had known in school, in high school and college. And he had disappeared from my life for many years. But I thought to myself, I remember him somehow being involved in this. I remember seeing him in the woods before I went up in the air with these bizarre creatures. So I telephoned him and his phone was disconnected. And I thought, aha, uh -huh. I bet I have been attacked by people in the government who didn't like my book. And this is, I'm on the trail now because I remember him very well. I knew him. Mm -hmm. So I called his brother, which I had his brother's phone number. I called his brother and his brother said to me, quickly, he's been dead since last month. He died. He'd been dead for nine months when I sat there and talked to him. Wow. My yeah. God. So I was just thrown. I didn't know what to think. And I went to the trouble of getting his death certificate. Mm -hmm. And he definitely had died. And I was really very disturbed when my doctor, then we had a brain scan done and a test for temporal lobe epilepsy that can cause vivid hallucinations. And we had a psychological profile done and 
probably some other tests I don't remember, but nothing showed anything abnormal except that I was under an enormous amount of stress. And I was breaking down and I was thinking to myself that I'm going insane. And I tried to push my wife away then. I tried to get her to divorce me and we had big fights and it was all very hard. What I didn't know was I had been stressed out because I had PTSD from the stress of the experience. I couldn't remember it clearly enough to know that. And then it has happened. My brother had sent me a book for Christmas. This was now late, probably February, early March, called Science and the UFOs. And I wasn't interested in those things. And so I hadn't picked it up. But now I thought to myself, well, hell, they really did look strange. Maybe I should read this. And maybe these UFO things are something real. They were certainly a big deal when I was a kid. And I found in the book a description of a man having an experience that was somewhat like mine. And a mention of a researcher called Bud Hopkins and a claim that this was a so-called alien abduction. And I met Bud Hopkins and he wanted to hypnotize me, saying that if he hypnotized me, more clarity would come. Now, I still didn't really believe in alien abductions. And I thought to myself, aha, Maybe if I could get hypnotized, these weird faces, I could get identify these people. Right. So I wouldn't let him hypnotize me because he was an artist. He was not a professional. So to his credit, he proceeds to come up with the best professional in the whole field, probably in the United States, Dr. Don McLean, the head of the New York State Department of Psychiatry, who was also a specialist in forensic hypnosis and had solved numerous crimes using this technique by enabling people to remember things like license plate numbers and so forth. Never let anyone tell you that hypnosis isn't a useful tool. It's not a useful tool in the hands of amateurs, but in the hands of a pro like that, it is a very useful tool. So Don and I, Dr. Klein and I, both sort of laughing up our sleeves at Bud Hopkins, but expected it to reveal more clarity about this alien abduction. We were thinking it was going to reveal clarity all right, but it would be people that I would see, not these things. That's not what happened. It became obvious that not only had the two incidents involved very strange creatures, but that this had been in my life since I was a child. And it totally overturned my life. I did not know what to say to my poor wife, who I had been really terribly hard on, because I thought if she left me, if I went insane and had to be institutionalized, she wouldn't be able to divorce me then. She would have to be saddled with a helpless invalid as a husband when she was trying to raise a little boy. Where would they get money? She would have had to become a teacher or something, but it would have essentially left her high and dry. Now, I thought, I love her. I loved her dearly. She's right back there. You can see her watching over us right now. And the last thing, the hardest thing I had ever done was try to drive her away. Now I had to sit down and say, I don't want a divorce. And why? Because I've been abducted by aliens. And I thought to myself, now she's going to say, oh, well, let's do get the divorce. So I told my one of my best friends, a photographer in New York called Timothy Greenfield Saunders, who's quite famous, actually, and was then, too, the whole story. And Tim says to me, Whitley, just tell her. Just tell her. So I sat down with her on the couch, and I could see tears forming in the corners of her eyes because she thought I was going to say, we've come to a point where we, we need to think about a separation. Instead, I said, 
I think I have an explanation for what's wrong. I think I've been taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. And she looked at me for a minute and she said, oh, thank God. Now I don't have to get a divorce. And a whole new life for both of us began in that moment. Because in that moment, Anne took the whole problem into hand. And she became the leader of the two of us in our quest to understand what happened and remained so for the rest of her days. We wrote the book Communion together. I was going to call it Body Terror. She said, no, you don't. It's Communion. It's about a new kind of relationship that's going to be deeper than any relationship human beings have ever had before, either with each other or anyone else. And she seemed to know about it. She seemed completely comfortable with it. And then we got tens of thousands of letters from people. And the male men were coming and just pouring them in heaps on the floor of our living room. And I did not know what to do with them. And I said, they all had addresses on them and intimate stories of this thing happening. We thought it happened to maybe 50 people, but that's what Bud Hopkins had thought. And now it turned out to be maybe hundreds of thousands or even millions of people had seen that face that's on the cover of the book Communion. And here, let me give it to you, show it to you. This is the original painting. And uh, that face triggered memories in millions of people. It changed the world. It was the beginning of contact is what it was. And I said to Anne, what are we going to do with all these letters? Because they contain very private stories. Because this was at the time, as it still is to some extent now, something you did not talk about. And I said, I don't know what to do with them. She said, well, I do. I'm going to read them. I said, you can't read all these letters. And she says, oh, yes, I can. And she basically got out her letter opener and started opening them and reading them. She made a chart of the letters to organize all of the letters as to which was which and so on and so forth, what level each letter was and made marks on all of the letters. And she did that for years. She hired a secretary, Lori Barnes, and they worked together for 15 years. The letters came in for years. They ended up in a storage space in Texas. We lost all of our money because of this, because, you know, people will buy a book from a controversial author, but a program called South Park's very popular premiere episode was a spoof of me. They never used my name, but it was basically turning me into a laughingstock and transforming my rape from something awful and that I should have been treated more gently and lovingly for into an international joke. And I became the only person that has ever been raped and universally laughed at for having that happen to me. And people won't buy a book from someone who's being laughed at. So my sales, by this time, I was not writing so much about community anymore. My sales just dropped off. We lost everything. We lost our cabin. We lost our place in New York. We ended up in a little two-room condo in Texas. And the letters ended up in a storage space. They stayed there for many years until Jeffrey Kripal, Professor Jeffrey Kripal of Rice University, the head of their Department of Religion at the time, wanted to preserve the letters. And they've ended up in an archive at Rice University called the Authors of the Impossible Archive. They've all been saved. And they represent humanity's first description of contact. And they are of inestimable historical value. A lot of us are still laughing about it. The government is still in denial about it. But it's real, and it happened, and it does happen. Not so much anymore like that. And those letters are our testament. They are the beginning of the process that Annie identified from the very first week 
we began to work on this whole project together. You know, the beginning of communion. Now, why did you decide that you needed to write about this experience? You're looking at the reason behind me. She said, we have to put this in a book. I said, well, I'll tell you how it happened. It was really very strange. I began to try to understand it and to do research. And I looked into the UFO community. Bud Hopkins introduced me to a new UFO researcher called Stanton Friedman, who was very famous. And Stanton, I was looking for physical evidence of this. And Stanton said, well, there is someone who might help you. His name is Dr. Robert Sauerbacher. He's a metallurgist, and he's written publicly about the fact that he was analyzing metal from a crashed UFO that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. And so he gave me his number, and I called him. And he was very interested in my experience. He told me that, yes, he had analyzed this material. He told me a lot about it. He said it was very, very strong and very light. And that they, once the electron microscope was perfected, they figured out why, that the molecules of the metal were in grids and they were molecular grids that had been designed. In other words, whoever was working in these metals was working at the molecular level to change the molecular structure of the metal to make it super, super strong and super light. And he said to me, I want you to write out everything you remember about what happened to you and send it to me. And he gave me his address. And I wrote it out the next day and sent it to him. That you know, the day after that, I sent it to him by UPS Express, which was new then. It was We didn't have FedEx in our area, but UPS Express overnight, we did. So I overnighted it to him. And the UPS man called me from his residence in Florida and said he had died the night before. And they would send me back the material I sent to him. I never received it back. Again, I ended up looking up a death certificate. And it says he died of natural causes. But the UPS man said he fell off his boat and he lived on a yacht. He was very wealthy. And I don't know what really happened to him. But it was very, very disturbing because Stanton Friedman had said, this is the biggest secret the United States government has. And I want to warn you. They can get violent if they feel threatened. And then here this happens. And I thought, my God, have I been a contributor to what has happened to this poor man? Or was it an accident? Annie said, we have to write a book. We have to put this all down in a book and publish it. And we did. Gosh. That was some time ago. I remember. That was 19. We started, this must have been early 1986, because we started writing the book in early 1986 or 1985. I forget exactly when. So it was sometime in that period. Mm-hmm. And the book was sent to the publishers. And then publisher William Morrow and company loved the book and bought it. And they were aware of resistance to this book for some reason. that They would never, my editor was never clear to me about this. But what they did was instead of selling the book in, which they usually would do, they just sent it cold to every bookstore in the country. And people were just opening these boxes and seeing this book. And they put it on the shelves, and it sold like hotcakes. And I think if they'd sold it in, the government might have stepped in and prevented it from being ever appearing. Yes. This was a question I wanted to ask you about this. You talked about people, there being a potential for violence in talking about the subject. And the government shutting things down. Who do you think is behind all of that? Well, David Grush, the intelligence officer, who recently testified for Congress, commented that people had been killed. Yeah. And 
as to who's behind it, who is ever behind it is terribly afraid. People don't do things like that unless they're terrified. They don't silence somebody unless they're terrified that if they don't silence them, something terrible will happen. So that's all I can say. I can't say I know who it is. I don't. But I do think they do exist. And I do think people have been damaged and destroyed even by this and killed. Yes. You referenced the recent disclosure hearings. And yes. listened to the whole thing. I thought that was a pretty bold move to have. And I realized there was the citizen's disclosure several years ago. I don't. But it was not like this. It was not like this. No. Right? Not with a highly credentialed intelligence officer whose record is backed by other intelligence officers. No. Exactly. Of course, the Pentagon tried to smear him afterwards. But that they do, I have a very low opinion of them. I really, really do. I don't think they've handled this or a lot of other things well at all. I think it's the organization is too big and it has slipped into defending itself. The Defense Department is more interested in defending itself than it is defending the American people. And sometimes I think it's defending itself from us, from the people. Right, right. What do you think is next after these disclosure hearings? Well, if the Department of Defense has anything to do with it, the answer is nothing. And I've noticed that Congress is sort of quieting down. And I have a feeling that there have been closed-door hearings. And in these closed-door hearings, my best guess is our representatives, senators, and congressmen have been told that the abductions are real, that nothing can be done about them, and that people's sexual material has been removed from them forcibly for years. And either the government can't stop it or intentionally let it happen, but in either case, it is a fundamental failure to protect us. And that is the basic thing we pay our taxes for, that we will be protected in our homes. And that is not the case here. And if these representatives are told that that's the reason for the secrecy, I think that most of them are going to just back off. And I hope I've heard rumors that there will be more coming out this October. And I hope that's true. I hope so, too. What? Yes, I hope so, too. Yes, exactly. And they're just rumors. I can't attribute them at all. But that's what I've heard. And I hope it's true. And if it doesn't happen, then I think things will just go back to the way they were. Well, one good thing did come out of that, I feel, is that there is a new law or something passed that anyone in the military or any pilots coming forward to talk about this won't lose their job over it. Well, yeah, but the thing is, they're supposed to come to the Pentagon's office, Arrow. And I don't think the Pentagon is going to be policing itself. In any case, if you read the law that brought Arrow into existence, it's under no obligation to inform the American people of anything. It seems to me that it's an office designed to capture people who want to tell their stories. Security risks, in other words. That's its only real purpose. Mm -hmm. It's not to do anything good, but rather to keep the lid on in a new way. And I don't have any expectation that it will lead anywhere except to a deeper level of secrecy. So taking it further underground. Taking it further underground by putting the fear of the Lord into anyone who comes to Arrow with and says, I have this information. Mm -hmm. I think that those people will be 
greatly endangered by doing so. I think their careers will be ruined, and I think the Pentagon will lash out at them. And the purpose of Arrow, it's like a bug trap that you put up in the summer evening, and the insects all are attracted to it. And it's there to attract people who are security risks and to deal with them accordingly. Mm. Now, did you have any repercussions like that after publishing Communion? You and I certainly did. I do to this day. You do? Uh, oh, yeah. I'll give you a couple of examples. After I published a book called Confirmation in 1998, I guess it was, or 97, Parade Magazine, which was then a, it's a Sunday supplement. It was a huge thing in those days because Sunday newspapers were gigantic. And in my case, very much mourned part of American life. And Parade Magazine, just as the book was coming out, published a story to the effect that I had discovered I had temporal lobe epilepsy and made a contribution to the Epilepsy Foundation. It's a complete lie from beginning to end. At the time, Parade was owned, I believe, by an Air Force, a retired Air Force Reserve General. And I called the magazine and ended up talking to an editor who said very happily to me, oh, your friends in the Air Force slipped us that information. We weren't sure that you would want it publicized, but we felt like people needed to know. And I said, you do understand it's false. I have actually, the opposite has happened. I've been tested for temporal lobe epilepsy and I don't have it. And I forced them to print a retraction. But the book was harmed by this because everybody reads the story. Nobody reads the retraction. And then, of course, South Park came along. I don't know if that's any connection. But most recently, I get money from each month from the sale of my books from Amazon and Audible and other places. And the Audible royalty statements came, but not the check. The money didn't come. And they wouldn't tell me why. They would not. They just went into breach of contract and simply refused to say anything about it. And so I had to hire an attorney to force them to pay me. And the attorney said, after looking into it, there's only one thing that could have been done. Someone in the company did this intentionally. It's not an accident. It wasn't something that was overlooked. And whoever in the company did it was high enough to where the lower levels were afraid to even tell you anything. They just were silent when you asked what was going on. And I don't know where that harassment came from. It could have just been someone at the company who wanted to bully me. I get that all the time. I'm bullied a lot. And that could have been had some sort of official locomotion. I don't know. But those are just three incidents of hundreds and hundreds. One of my doctors was visited by the FBI after I got during the, it wasn't the right doctor. They visited the wrong doctor, but uh, he was very upset about it. And he said to me, I had the FBI in here and they were asking questions about you and they wanted your medical records with really. I didn't have any obligation to give them. And I just want you to know I didn't give them your medical records. I said, well, thank you very much, because if they come with to you with a warrant, you've got no choice. But they can't just ask him. And they never came back with a warrant as far as I know. So mm. it's just a lot of things like that happen. A lot of things. Oh, goodness. Well, a movie came out of it. Yeah, the movie was made called Communion. Yeah, with Christopher Walken playing your part. Yeah. So you don't get much more visible than that. That's true. However, the movie was released, and the week the movie was released, the releasing company went bankrupt. The movie was in theaters for seven days, and it then was removed from the theaters, and since then has not been 
available on anything except recorded equipment, DVDs and VHS and now streaming and CDs. That's all. Was there any repercussion specific to the movie? No. The only thing that about the movie was this. When the book was sent out to Hollywood by CAA, my agency, you would think it was a huge bestseller and obviously a, just an ideal choice for a big movie. Instead, I was given an appointment with one studio, Paramount, and with the head of the studio, only him, who was slated to be fired because of a movie he had put out that was a major disaster. And that was the only place they sent the movie. I had to find independent financing and a director and so forth in order to get the movie made at all. And the movie is nowhere near what it could have been if it had Hollywood skill and money behind it. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, earlier you said that you found out through hypnosis you had been abducted even as a child. Apparently, yes. What did you find out? Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I would like to ask you a few simple favors. First of all, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you're listening. You know, it sounds like a simple little thing, and it is, but it has a huge impact for us because it helps other people find us in the podcasting algorithms. I don't know how it works, but I do know that it helps a lot. Next, if you would subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether that's YouTube or Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Spotify, wherever you're listening, just hit subscribe or follow, and that helps you and it helps us. It helps you because then you receive notifications when we have a new episode that's out. It helps us because, again, algorithm, magic, I don't know what happens but it helps. And then finally, you can support our podcast in a tangible way by going to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast, and then click on support the show. Now we have a new feature too. We are now on Patreon. You can find us on Patreon. You can also find the link to Patreon when you go to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast. So on Patreon, for $3 a month or $5 a month, you can support your metaphysical and spiritual growth. You can learn about upcoming guests, and you can get early and ad-free versions of the shows. So please support us. This podcast is free for you to listen, but we have costs, and quite frankly, they come out of my pocket. So if you like this content, if you get a lot out of it, please see what you can do to give back. Thank you so much. Well, it was very interesting. Dr. Klein, who had, of course, interviewed many people who had been experienced molestation, and he noticed a change in my voice. You know, when you're under hypnosis, you're not blacked out. I was very aware of what was going on, and I was very relaxed and just letting it flow, and it was all very vivid in my mind when it was happening. And He suddenly said, how old are you? 
because he had noticed this change that he had recognized before, because when a person experiences repeated trauma across the course of their life, they will, under these circumstances, their mind will move back and forth to various ages. And the only thing you can tell is the change in the voice or the demeanor. And he was very sensitive to this. And when he said, how old are you? To my great surprise, I heard my little Texas voice from boyhood say, 12. And it was deeply moving and extraordinary. I remembered being in the context of these bizarre creatures with my father and my sister. And I was explaining to my father, this woman, this being, was touching a bunch of soldiers that were on cots with a little wand on their foreheads. And I was perfectly content to be there. And my father and sister were standing to one side, and they looked very frightened. And I turned to them, and I said, Daddy, it's all right, as if I had been there before, in other words. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, Whitty, it's not all right. And I will never forget, right then and there, in that session, an absolutely incredible wave of physically tangible fear went through my body because I was reliving the fear I had experienced at that moment when I realized my dad was afraid. And I'm telling you, I don't believe that didn't happen. It did happen. You don't imagine things like that. It was dug up out of me. So yes, I think I had this experience as a child. No, my father never said a word about it. However, his brother was heavily involved. His brother, my uncle, was involved in the Roswell incident. He was one of the officers at Wright Field who was present when the debris was and the bodies were brought from Roswell. And he was one of the officers who examined this material at Wright Field. He was in the Air Materiel Command. And his commanding officer, then not his commanding officer, that the commanding officer at the time was General Nathan Twining of Air Materiel. His commanding officer, Art Exon, General Exon, had an extensive conversation with me and, among other things, said he had held one of the bodies in his arms. And then you have David Grush all these years later saying, we have bodies. And I'm sitting there thinking, finally, the truth is coming out. But now the Pentagon is doing everything it can to shut everyone up again. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that, too, in the disclosure hearing. And I thought, oh, my gosh, here it comes, here it comes. And then nothing came of it, of course. Nothing will. They'll do anything to prevent this from coming out anything, including, and I assure you this is true, and I'm very aware of it, which is why I don't live very long, much in this country anymore. They will kill people for it. No question in my mind about it. Keep it quiet. Why? Why? What motive would they possibly have? Because the abductions were allowed to happen. Eggs and sperm were taken. And what does that mean? What does it mean? Does it mean that these beings made versions of us or some kind of hybrid? What did they do with that? And why weren't we told? Why didn't I know beforehand what might happen? Why was I left in the dark? Why were they all these people left in the dark? My new book, Them, analyzes a number of their experiences. And there's hundreds and hundreds of these stories out there. And you have a government that either let it happen intentionally or unintentionally, or couldn't do anything about it. That's the core of the secrecy, I'm sure. And they probably know why the sexual material was taken to, and they're never going to tell us. And obviously, the beings, they're not telling us a thing either. So any secrecy our government has 
follows the policy of these beings. They are secretive too. So the government is on their side, not ours. Do you think they are working together? I have no idea. I've heard all kinds of stories, but I don't have any direct information about that at all. Right. Yeah, I don't know if they're not working together. I can't imagine that our government would have any sway over them to prevent or warn people about it. I think in them, in the book, I go into all of the efforts that have been made to create weapons that can give us some control over the situation. But I don't think we've succeeded in that. If we had succeeded, I don't think they would be holding on to the secret so tenaciously. Exactly. But as I say, maybe something will happen soon. Maybe it will, more will come out. Right. Eventually, if stuff keeps leaking out, the dam will break. And if at first, I would assume the Pentagon will say, oh, well, the, all these people claiming their abductions are crazy. But it will soon become clear that that's not the case. And then the cat will be out of the bag. And, you know, people always say, oh, we won't be frightened. Yes, you will. You will. Mm -hmm. You will be very frightened because you will be helpless before this extraordinary, vitally alive and active presence. And there's nothing you can do about it. And they will do whatever they please. And that is scary. And it will be scary. And we have to face that. It's not going to be aliens landing on the White House lawn and showing us cool new cell phones. That's not what it's about. It's about something much deeper, communion. Okay, what does this mean to you, this communion? Communion is the sharing of self. Eat of my body, drink of my blood. That's communion. Mm -hmm. And it is the creation, the evolution of a unity of these species, of them and us, and the emergence into something new. And when you say that, and you think in terms of sexual material being taken on a mass scale, you're talking, you understand what it is. It's an actual physical change. This is what evolution looks like when it's applied to a conscious mind. That's essentially what we're dealing with here. Mm. What is the end goal, do you think? Well, I think that the end goal is to make something, a species, that contains them and us and is a mixture of both and contains all of the power of both. I don't think it's necessarily a bad goal, but when you don't understand it and can't do anything about it, then you're kind of the victim. It doesn't feel very comfortable. Now, some believe that these encounters are going on to create an alien hybrid species as you... Well, I think that might be what I'm talking about right now. Right, right. Yeah, Human-alien hybrid species. Yes, yes. With presumably um... some of their skills and competencies and mm -hmm. some of ours as well. I mean, on the bottom line is evolution looked extremely distressing to the dinosaurs. And we might be the dinosaurs, but that doesn't mean evolution is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Because little mammals creeping around in tunnels and burrows didn't find it distressing at all. In fact, they made out very well when the dinosaurs went extinct. And we might be the dinosaurs, but this new species that seems to be born, maybe being born, is going to inherit the earth. And we will be part of it. In other words, the echo of us will be in them, just as the echo of the dinosaurs is, it lives on in the birds. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, there's quite a bit of talk and writings and research about our species currently as it is, having been seeded by these extraterrestrials. Dolores Cannon, whose picture's above me, she wrote about this in some of her books. Yes. What do you... I, I don't know. 
I've never seen a smoking gun. But right. if they've been here for a long time, and we know they are extremely interested in genetics, so they wouldn't be taking sexual material. Therefore, have they done this before? And they've been doing it for generations. Quite possible. Certainly it's possible. Mm -hmm. And the thought that the modern human is actually a hybrid, as is. Well, I don't know that. There's no evidence that our DNA, there's nothing mysterious about our DNA except for the substantial amount of what used to be called junk DNA, but apparently has some mysterious purpose that we don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe it's true. I don't know. But, you know, there's something about us. If you look at us and all of the other creatures on the planet, we are not just different. We're fantastic, radically, completely different. We look like designer species. Why aren't you covered with hair? How is it that you look like an art object? Is that what you are? <laughs> you know, is that what we are? And those are enormous questions and burning questions. And how do you explain us? There's no other creature on the planet that can even come close to what we know. Nothing you and nothing you can say to them or nothing you can communicate to them can ever give them the slightest idea of what a car is or how a thimble works or what a hamburger is or how it was made. Any of that. They can't cook. They cannot sew. They cannot weave. They cannot read. They cannot sing. They can make noises that are to our ears like song. But the other side of the coin is no one can communicate with anyone else either. Nothing we do can enable us to understand the mind of a chimpanzee or the mind of a dog. And the dogs live with us. The cats live with us. But we don't understand them. Mm. Where are we? And who are we going to become? If this is right, these people, these people with the big eyes, are making an absolutely extraordinary, incredible leap into a new level of reality to create something that has the understanding and mind of both species. And I think that might very well be what's afoot here. It's fascinating to think about, you know, what the end game is, right? Why any of this is going on. Well, things are changing so fast on planet Earth. I think a lot of us who are alive today are going to see that end game unfold. Because I don't think it's going to be long at all. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the environmental endgame doesn't unfold over the next few years. And I think that as that happens, our experience of contact and of communion will unfold at the same time in all likelihood. I, for one, like on the one hand, can't wait. I want to know. But on the other hand, it's oh, quite. It's going to be very hard. It was terribly hard on the dinosaurs. So... When you are out and about, do you talk about this subject very often with people? No, not really. When I'm with my family and friends, they've all heard me before. They don't need to listen to this again. This is my message and my voice in the wider world. In my daily life, well, I had lunch today with a gentleman, Greg Bishop, who's interested in UFOs and has written about them for many years. And we did some shop talk, but that's all. We just, you know, shop talk. But normally with my friends, it never even comes up because they, they know my stories. They've read my books. Mm -hmm. What we talk about is where to go to dinner tonight and that sort of thing. Do you feel like you have any lasting impact or lasting symptoms from these experiences? 
Well, the rape created scar tissue that I suffered pain from for more than 20 years. Mm. In fact, the last time I was suffering from it was two years ago. And I was under the treatment of various doctors over that whole period of time. And I haven't been bothered by it in some years. But there's also a very profound change in me spiritually. I was not a very seriously spiritual person at the time. But now I am absolutely devoted to the search for deeper truth and meaning. The picture you can see beside the picture of my wife are the four states of alchemical transformation. The dark one on the bottom is called Negredo. That's the beginning of realization. The white one, the white bird, is Albedo. That's the realization that one is essentially not awake. And then above it is Citrinitas, which is the bird spreading his wings and rising above life and learning to have an objective vision of life. And then the one beside that is Rubedo, the stone of knowledge and a knowledge of truth and good and evil. It is the philosopher's stone. So someone who has that on their wall has gotten pretty serious about the inner journey. And this experience with the visitors has done that to me. Why do you think they chose you? <laughs> well, you know, Anne and I used to discuss that a lot. And she said, well, one reason is you can't be embarrassed. You're unembarrassable. You're the most unembarrassable person I've ever known. And my son, at one point when he was about 15, said, you know, Dad, you actually are the most embarrassing father in the world. And, you know, it's a night of the communion thing. And I thought, poor kid, he's right. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons that they knew I would go out and talk about it. And I would not stop. And another reason is that I will not stop. I'm not going to stop. I have this, and I know it's real. And the more I'm resistance I get, the louder I'm going to become. It's just been like that all my life. And I'm going to keep trying to build my relationship with them. I want a relationship with them that works. I've been at it for years, and I haven't made much progress, but I have made some. I understand the language of the relationship. I understand its grammar. I'm going to getting ready to start a new book that's essentially about the grammar of communication with them because it ain't sitting down across a table and chatting. Believe me, it's a whole different ball of wax and it's not something we do among each other, but it is possible to understand it. Okay. Do tell because I have got a master's in linguistics. I'm fascinated with language. First of all, it hasn't got anything to do with spoken language. at all. Obviously. Right. Yes. It is a way of living the work of being. It's very hard to put into words, but to communicate, we have to go deeper. We have to start by going deeper than language. And that's where they want to take us, is deeper than language. And there's a lot of demonstration. And for example, there's a time of day that occurs about an hour and a half before daylight that in some yoga traditions is called Brahma time. It is known as the time of learning when the mind is most open. Visitors at right after Annie passed away, or Annie herself perhaps in another form, began to wake me up during that time to do a meditation, to take my mind, my attention out of my mind and let it on, leave it on my body and let my mind just be open and information would flow in. That's not linguistics, but it certainly is communication. This gives me so much peace, Whitley. I can't even explain. Because I just feel like there's something really huge here, and we are on the cusp of it. Yes, exactly. We are. And once we get to the point 
where we are our side of it is not controlled by the military who looks upon it as a threat and it's controlled by scientists and academics and people philosophers religious leaders then we're going to probably be able to make some progress but right now that's not possible because we're not doing too well we're standing here with guns in our hands and on the one hand and the rest of us the ones without the guns in their hands are just being basically told to shut up and keep away from the battlefield. I don't think so. I don't think there is a battlefield, not one that we did not create. Right. The problem, I think, is us. Yeah, exactly. I do, too. I think we need to find fundamental change. And in order to do that, we've got to somehow or another change the way the official world reacts to and thinks about this. And that, I think, is going to be very hard. I think what will happen is that the environment is going to become so untenable in the next three or four years that people are going to begin to demand that this whole operational system stand down and we start to do this all in a new way. And I'm not just talking about contact and close encounter. I'm talking about the entire relationship worldwide between the political class and the ordinary people. I think the political class is in the process of becoming obsolete. It's going to be obsoleted by nature itself. And a new kind of community is going to have to grow up around the world and we're not going to survive. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. When the ocean off the coast of Florida is 101 degrees and someone in the Ukraine is busy shooting up the place, come on. The shooter in the Ukraine and the crazed governor in Florida have got to get together and figure out a much larger way of surviving because it hasn't got a lot to do with climate change denial and warfare and everything to do with the welfare of our children and the future of this species. Amen. Amen. So these days you've got a website, unknowncountry.com. Yes, that's right. There's many podcasts that are on here. Not all of them are yours from what I see. No, that's right. There's a uh, Dreamland and I do it three weeks a year, a month, and Jeremy Vaney does it one week a month. And there are a number of other podcasts. Some of them are not running anymore, and some of them are. But it's a very active website. It's got a lot of people on the website. It offers subscriptions if you want to get more involved in commentary and engage in the social activities on the website, which are lovely. It's a lovely, lovely group of people who are attracted to this site. Yeah. And also there's a YouTube channel where Dreamland, my show, goes out on video. So, yeah, there's a lot. Yes, it is very, very active and very vibrant. There's a message board and other yeah. destinations. And, yeah, One cool. thing you have to say about the Close Encounter Witnesses, they're yeah. not a bunch of dummies. The skeptics and the government would like people to believe that we're a bunch of people. Crackpots. Crackpots and conspiracy theorists. But what you have are a very bright, group of people. And I'll tell you one thing, when you get a group of them together, we used to have this thing called the Dreamland Festival where a couple of hundred people, most of them close encounter witnesses would get together. And what you would find, a bunch of very ordinary people, they weren't like, most of them weren't like PhDs and so forth, but they were mostly very bright people and very gentle people. And I thought to myself, the visitors are very small and physically quite vulnerable, I think. And I'm not too surprised that all the people they've abducted are really gentle by nature. Because you know, they're, they're not going to be abducting somebody who's going to be fighting too hard, I don't think. True. Very true. 
so your book, I think you said it was them. Is that the it's called them? Yes, and it's available as an audio book on Audible, which hopefully they will pay me what they owe me. We've gotten past that little nice. wrinkle, and it's available on Amazon and on uh, Barnes and Noble, I believe, in different places. It's not available in bookstores because the publishers long since decided that they didn't want any more Whitley Strieber books, and it's not because of any conspiracy theory. But because the book simply didn't sell, but I can sell them. Mm-hmm. You can even get autographed copies if you go on Unknown Country, and uh, I can sell my books, and they do well. They do quite well. So I love my books, and I'm able to get out there and say to people, "These are worth reading," and mean it. But a publisher will put them out, and there's no room for the author to advertise or anything. And if it doesn't pick up at the bookstore, then people you know, forget it. And as I said earlier, people will buy a book from somebody who's controversial, but not from somebody who's being laughed at. And for the general wider public, I am basically still the rectal probe man, Whitley Strieber. Ha, ha, ha. That's basically what I am. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I have been telling everyone who will listen to me that I had this interview coming up and I was so excited about it. And the general consensus is that is pretty cool. It's going to be a popular interview because the other side of the coin is an awful lot of people are good people and they have open eyes and they're not dumb. They're much smarter than the media and the government and the big scientists would like to believe. And here we are. We're doing it. I don't notice the visitors going to Mr. PhD or Dr. PhD or Mr. President. They're going into your bedroom. (laughs) It's where they're going. (laughs) And mine. All right. Well, Whitley, this has been such a pleasure. I've really been looking forward to this for a long time. So thank you again for sitting and chatting with me. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. And we'll talk again sometime soon, maybe. I love that. Absolutely. I'd love to have you back. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.